It's okay. Thank you, Baumans. Love that song and really encouraging to hear you all sing it and play it. So it's good to be back home um, after a long hiatus here. We've missed two Sundays uh, due to vacation, and then uh, last Sunday was the tail end of that week of study and writing um, to work on the first draft of our new doctrinal statement. And so it's good to be back and get back into the saddle um, this week, at least here. Um, We had an elders meeting on Thursday night and started to to talk about that um, initial draft. And so I'm uh, excited. We are excited to work through that together as elders, however long that takes um, to make sure that we understand um, and have worked through all of these um, doctrines and then We'll bring it to you, and there will be a very clear, um, probably relatively long process of not just saying, here, you like it? You got any uh, feedback, anything to add or take away? But actually, I'm going to take the time on behalf of the elders to teach down through it. Uh, Most likely, we'll cancel Sunday school, not cancel it, but actually gather everyone together for however long it takes. Um, And again, the beginning of that is contingent on how long it takes us as elders to walk through that. But we want to take the time to walk through everything with you. And it could be that even that time, we're going to try to clarify things as much as possible in our times of walking through this. But it could be that that time is also used by God to clarify things and sharpen and strengthen the document. And so we're going to affirm it on the tail end of that process of us walking through it as a body. Okay, so that's kind of where we're headed. Um, That week was productive. Thank you for praying um, for me. And uh, I I just really was praying through that week and even before then uh, that this doctrinal statement, I don't know what the connotations are in your mind as far as doctrine is concerned. If that sounds like boring, if that sounds like dull, dead, sterile, you know, words on a page, then please make sure you come to those Sunday school classes because doctrine is for the sake of worship and life and everything. What you, it's funny that you're here, Bob, because I've heard that this is a statement that you repeated many times while you were here. Um, Other people have said it, Tozer, A.W. Tozer, What you believe about God, whether you're a good theologian or a bad theologian, will affect everything. Whether you know it or not, whether you agree with that or not, it still will. Um, So this stuff is massively important. And as I was walking through this so many times, just sitting at this table, um, one of the things that I was using as a template is the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith which is basically like the Westminster Confession for Baptists, okay? If you want a little primer on good doctrine and how it is just worship-inspiring, read that thing. Just Google London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689, and start reading it. Yeah, it's a 325-year-old document, and if you are alive in Christ, I think you're going to just want to sing. It is, it's so good, and that's what my prayer is, and, and I would ask you to join me in that. I'm sure, I know this is the heart of the elders as well, that that would be the dynamic with our doctrinal statement, that worship would actually produce it, 
We love this God, and we want to make sure that we clearly, faithfully reflect in a document how He's revealed Himself in the world and in His Word and in His Son. And we want it to inspire and actually produce worship so that as you read it and are guided by it, as we as a church are guided by it for the years to come, it would just be an edifying exercise. It would be something that actually produces worship in us. So all theology is intended to produce doxology and pray that that would happen as we walk through this process. I just am really excited for the opportunity to take the time and walk through these truths um, from God's Word. I think it's going to be really uh, strengthening, send the roots down deep, and uh, growth producing for our church. So that's a little update, and then ask you to continue to pray for that, that process. Okay, um, we were served well by um, the three men that, that uh, ministered God's Word. Thankful for those brothers. I was able to listen to the first two. I still need to listen to Bill Cruzens, but um, encouraged by what I heard. And, but it's good to be back. Uh, and we're going to be back in Luke 13 and finish up chapter 13. Um, that we began this section, 22 to 35, is really one section. I was going to try to finish it before we left, but... Uh, we wouldn't have done justice to verses 31 to 35, so we're finishing those this morning. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, if you're using the Pew Bible, um, you can find Luke 13 on page 1041. Well, I was visiting uh, the Prentices on Friday, as you heard Bill mention um, that Kathleen is not doing well. And, and actually, I'm surprised because Gail got a note from, from Kathy this morning that apparently she's taken, um, made a significant decline just even in the last day or so. And so she may only have a couple days left, whereas they were thinking before it could be, you know, a few months to maybe six months at the most. And so um, definitely be praying for the, the apprentices. But as I was visiting with them, um, Earlier in the week, when they found out the news that um, you know things were kind of heading in this direction, and she'd be coming home on hospice, um, if you notice that email from Gail that that uh, she sent on behalf of Kathy, they referenced Psalm 46 and how and how encouraging that text had been, and they had cried and prayed and thanked God for the fact that He is a very present help in trouble. And so when I met with them, we talked a little bit about Psalm 46, and one of the things that I shared with them is I love the fact that in that psalm, there's a refrain that's repeated, okay? So two times it's stated, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress, okay? So that little refrain is doing something really cool, in revealing the character of God because the Lord of hosts is this exalted, transcendent, omnipotent name of God. He is the commander of the armies of the heavens and the earth. Okay? So he's the Lord of hosts. He is mighty and strong. And he is with us. Us, down here, where we need him. So he condescends as this great commander and he comes down and he's with us. And the God of Jacob, who is Jacob? He's a skunk. But he was a covenantally loved skunk. 
So God came down into the mess and saved Jacob from himself. Low condescension, grace, mercy, and he's our fortress. Okay, isn't that sweet? High, low, low, high. And actually, the low is sweeter, the higher the high is. Okay, so if a, if a you know, low, dig, low dignity status person does some service to you, it's a blessing. But if some really great person did that, it would be an amazing blessing because it's just an incredible exercise of condescending grace and mercy and service to do that. So here's this infinitely, transcendently, there's no one above him, supreme God who is with us. And he, the gracious, merciful one that doesn't deal with us according to our sins, but according to his son, is our fortress. It's really sweet. So in this world, you don't get that combination. (laughs) You either get strength without much sympathy, without much patience or softness of heart. You've got some people you know that are really strong, but they're probably like stoic. Really strong, but they're not very sensitive, not very sympathetic. So they're really helpful in a, in a crisis, but as far as like counseling and, you know, really a shoulder to cry on, not there. Or vice versa, somebody that's just oozing with sympathy, but sometimes they're kind of wishy-washy. There's not much decisiveness or strength or backbone or firmness of resolve, okay? So in God, there's this glorious combination And in Christ, we see it most clearly and ultimately revealed. And we see it in these short verses in a beautiful way, verses 31 to 35. So that's what we're looking at this morning. So let's pray, or let's read this section together. We're actually going to read 22 to 35, and then uh, I will pray and we'll dive in. So the whole section, just to catch the context again, since it's been a few weeks. Luke 13, 22 to 35. And Jesus was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. And then our text for this morning. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to Jesus, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, 
I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day, or and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate, and I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day that you've made. We thank you for this church that you have formed and preserved and that you are at work here among us. We thank you for that. We thank you that you're at work among us today and that we're not here by accident. And so we pray that you would have your way this morning. Cause your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven in our lives so that your kingdom would come, so that your name would be hallowed. Lord, we come in here with disordered affections as we have heard about already in the songs we've sung, in the prayer that Bill prayed. We resonate with the cry that you would come, fount, and seal our hearts. We so easily wander and We just go off the rails. We get down in the ditch. And we are so focused on and passionate for all the wrong things so often. So come, thou fount of every blessing, and tune our hearts by your word, by your spirit, to sing your praise. Take our hearts and seal them for you direct them to you, lock them on you. We need your grace for that. We need your spirit to brood over us like your spirit hovered over the waters at the beginning, that chaotic, formless, and void black mass. And our lives are like that. Our hearts are like that, chaotic and disordered and empty. We thank you that your spirit comes because of the gospel of Jesus by your grace and can order what's disordered and bring peace to the chaos and the calm and can fill what's empty. And so, Lord, please, by your spirit, would you do that as we study your word, your breath breathed out, inspired for us. So we need your help and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you can see, um, if you weren't here four Sundays ago, um, 22 to 30 is a pretty sobering section. And actually, all of 12 and 13, chapters 12 and 13, are very sobering. They're talking about readiness. We've got to be ready. Jesus is saying this over and over again. Readiness for death, readiness for his return. And like he says at the beginning of chapter 13, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. 
So though this is sobering, there's also another side to, to these chapters where the point is that there's mercy now. So God is patient. His patience should lead us to repentance. So these warnings are not cruel. They are actually merciful and gracious because they're intended to shake us awake and lead us to repentance because one day the patience is going to end. So he he uses parable of the tree that's going to be cut down. Well, it hasn't been cut down yet, so there's still time, so repent. There's There's going to come a time you know, just in this immediate context here, where when the door of opportunity is going to be shut, and that prospect should cause us to shiver. Okay, we need to listen here. This is really deadly, blood-earnestly serious stuff. We've got to listen to what Jesus is saying. Okay, because the very people that he was talking to were the church-going people, which is exactly why they needed this message. They thought they were fine. But you know what? They were superficially connected to Jesus, and they thought that was fine. Oh, oh, we we ate in your presence. Well, that's not enough. They didn't trust him. And so you could be coming to church but not really trusting Jesus, and so these warnings are grace to you. They're grace to all of us because we can easily get lulled to sleep. And some are going to be deceived. They're going to realize that they really didn't come. Whoa, 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 wait. I, I came to church. I, I got baptized. I, I even served with VBS and on and on and on. No, I never knew you. Okay, so the warning now is really merciful for him to give that to us now so that there are no surprises in the future. He actually reveals the surprises here <laughs> so that we won't be surprised at the end, so that we'll repent Now, how many people, oh, I've made my peace with God. And they're just presuming on God. It hasn't really changed their life. They don't really follow Jesus. So, Jesus doesn't want us to be surprised, so he actually throws out that reversal, surprising reversal, for us ahead of time. Behold, some are last who will be first. Some are first who will be last. So what are you trusting in? Physical proximity You know, that's what they were claiming, appealing to. That's not going to do you any good. So, but again, there's grace here. There is time. And so we should strive now in the context here to enter through the narrow gate. Don't get lulled to sleep. You can know there's food in the fridge, but if you don't actually get up and get it and eat it, your belief is worthless. So you can know in your head that Jesus is the Savior, but if you're not coming to him and trusting in him, then he's not going to save you. So we can't make a truce with apathy or indifference. Jesus died to provide this way for us, to open the door for us, for that promise to the one who knocks, it will be open for that to be true for us. Okay, because, and again, please don't, you know, I know this, please don't just dismiss this. I know this is review, but even to come to a text like this, sometimes we can just dismiss it you realize life is really, really serious. In the end, there's going to be two sides, inside, outside. That is the door that matters. And we can question it. We can resent it. We can attempt to put God in the dock. We can call God's love and fairness into question. But at the end of the day, God is God. We are not, we are not wiser than God. We are not more loving than he 
You can, you can think that. You can hold on to it, but only for a time. And one day, you'll see that those were the only options. So this is really serious, and this is really gracious of Jesus to reveal this ahead of time so that we take stock now. Hear that door close now. Am I really trusting in Jesus? Would I be on the outside if he came back right now? So that's a little brief review of where we've been. Now, in verse 22, which is the beginning of the bigger section, do you see what it says there? He was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. Okay? That's a strong theme in Luke. Jesus is headed to die. There's a turning point in 951 where it says he sets his face like flint, and that's where he's going. And this theme comes up again in our section here, and it comes up very significantly in verses 31 to 35. So let's look at it together. Whose will, first point, there's an outline in the bulletin. Um, there's going to be a few changes to it, so I'll, I'll alert you to those when we get there. Whose will will be done? Verse 31. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to Jesus, Go away. Leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, we don't know what their motivation is here. Was this a group of Pharisees that was actually sympathetic to Jesus and his ministry? There were a few of those. Was it out of concern? Or was it deceptive? It was out of false concern just to get him out of their realm, out of their influence, or maybe even into an area where they had more influence so they could arrest him and put him to death. We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. That's not where the point is. So Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. Nothing's going to divert him from his path. They don't know it. But if you've been paying attention through the book of Luke, you might notice how they are actually speaking right here with forked tongue, with an echo of the voice of the evil one. Remember back in chapter 4 when Jesus was tempted by Satan? Satan wanted to get Jesus to listen to him and take the shortcut around suffering. Hey, you're hungry. Turn the stone into bread. Implicit, don't trust God. He led you out here to starve. Take matters into your own hands. You want to rule? You were born to rule. Just bow down to me and I'll give it all to you. No need to go through all that suffering and humiliation of the, at the cross and route to the crown. I'll give it to you straight away. You want to know if your father loves you? You must be doubting that about right now. I mean, being led out here by the Spirit into the wilderness to suffer 40 days. Throw yourself down from the pinnacle. Bible says he'll bear you up so that you don't strike your foot against a stone. Don't you need to test this so that you know? And then what's here? The Pharisees saying, listen to us. You'll escape death. He wants to kill you. So, by the way, we might want to just take note of this, that this is a central mode of operation for Satan. Since the very beginning, what has he done? He's tried to get us to doubt God's goodness and trustworthiness to doubt his word and take matters in our own hands, right? So look back at, at verse 31. The Pharisees say, get out of here. We're warning you. Herod wants to kill you. This is, this is a real death threat. I mean, this is quite a realistic possibility. This is Herod Antipas. Um, this isn't Herod the Great who killed all the baby boys. Um, this is his son who was a tetrarch and kind of a ruler king over an area. 
He doesn't like talk of any revolutionary leader. So he's, he's on to you, Jesus. You better hide. You better run. So the question is, who's the real king? Whose will is going to be done? Who will rule and reign here? Okay, so look at the sovereignty of Jesus in verses 32 and 33. Sovereignty of God. <clears throat> Jesus' trust in God's sovereign will. Look at that in his response, verse 32. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day. And <laughs> I did it again. And, and the third day I reach my goal. So three, three things to notice here quick. First, Jesus calls Herod a fox. What does that mean? Um, as far as the idiom of the day, there's, there's really three options. Um, it's quite possible that all the nuances are intended. One, that he's a nobody and a threat, or not a threat, a nobody and no threat. Um, secondly, according to one scholar who's read a lot of the Jewish writings of the time, he wrote an article on this metaphor, and he offered some alternate possible translations, okay, getting at this second sense. Weakling, small fry, usurper, poser, clown, insignificant person, cream puff, nobody, weasel, tin soldier, peon, pompous pretender, upstart. Okay, so that's the first sense. He's a nobody. He's no threat. Secondly, it could mean that he's sly or that he's cunning. Okay, you can tell. We still use it that way, sly like a fox. Okay, or that he's a destructive person. Okay, obviously foxes can wreak havoc with other animals that are weaker. Um, so you can see how they would all three apply in this case. But I think contextually the point is that he is an insignificant puppet king. Ultimately, he's no threat to Jesus if you see where things go from here. Herod obviously thought he was a great man. The Pharisees thought he was powerful. But his rule is nothing compared to King Jesus and the one whose will he is carrying out. Yeah, he's no threat. This is exactly the way that people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego responded to the so-called threat of Nebuchadnezzar or Daniel. He knew this with King Darius. God's in charge of you. So, a little bit of orientation as we walk through this passage. This is kind of a challenging passage to know how to apply to our lives, but I think one of the things that we need to, to get from this that we should be hit by as we walk through this is that we should just flat out be impressed with Jesus. We should adore him. Okay, this is one of those points in the story or in the movie where your hearts would swell and you'd say, yes, because the hero is in total control. Do you know what I'm saying? You watch that movie and people make the threats and, and the hero just says, you've got no power over me. And you just go, yes. Like, we're, we're too familiar. Like, look at Jesus and be impressed. He is sovereignly fearless in the face of real threat. So, it's just like when Jesus was before Pilate, about to be sent out to be crucified. Same thing. If we were watching the movie, we would just, our hearts would swell. Enter the praetorium again, said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me. 
do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. <laughs> and you got to be sitting there and just say, yes! Do you see what I'm saying? We should be affected by the person of Christ. So Pharisees say, get out of here and hide. Herod's after you. Jesus basically says, this is actually a term of contempt. He says, Herod, he is nothing. Go and tell him. You go and tell that fox. I cast out demons and I perform cures today and tomorrow. I'm just going to keep going with my ministry the way I have. And on the third day, I'm going to fulfill my plan. I'm going to fulfill my goal. I will reach my goal. I'm not going to be scared off or sidetracked or slowed down by you. I've got nothing to fear. So we have this awesome, unflappable display of the sovereignty of Jesus in 31 to 33. And then now in verse 34, there's this surprising shift. And for what it's worth with the outline, Jesus with wings is going to be just kind of subsumed under this point because we're not going to make it a separate point. And then I'm actually not even going to touch on prophet, priest, and king um, this morning. Okay? So we just saw sovereignty. Now we're going to see sympathy. Look at verse 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. So Jesus is saying, people, you need to listen to me. You need to hear these warnings. You should not be presumptuous. You should learn from your history that you have often killed the very spokesman of God. And once again, you're opposed to me, the prophet of God. Okay, it's just like that scripture that Bill read at the, at the scripture reading time. Remember, he sends one servant, they beat him. Another servant, they beat him. Another one, they beat him, cast him out. The prophets, oh, I'll send the son, they'll listen to him. No, actually, they killed the son. Okay, so here we are still pondering whose will is going to be done. Herod wants to kill Jesus. Sorry, that's not going to happen. His will is not going to be done. But here the shocker is that Jesus has often wanted, same word as Herod wanted to kill, to gather the children of Israel just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And he's been frustrated in that desire. His will has not been done. He describes this desire to gather them like a hen with her chicks. And by doing that, he picks up an image from the Old Testament. You're probably familiar with this if you've read some of the Old Testament. Describes the character of God this way. In Ruth, remember? May the Lord reward your work. Your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings, Boaz to Ruth, under whose wings you've come to seek refuge. Or Psalm 91, which has also been really sweet to the to the apprentices this week, and any of you that are doing the fighter verses, you know that's what we're memorizing right now. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. 
So David in Psalm 57 says, in the shadow of your wings, I'll take refuge until destruction passes by. There's several others in the Old Testament, same kind of image. So Herod's will, his desire to kill Jesus, that's not going to happen. Jesus' desire, his will, is to gather Jerusalem under his wings, and he's frustrated in the desire. I know that language probably makes you nervous. If it makes you nervous, that's probably a good thing, okay? What do you mean? Jesus' will is frustrated. He's God, right? I'm going to qualify that in a minute, but let's let the text stand. There's one more use of this wanting, willing word in this section. It's at the end of verse 34. Jesus says, How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And literally, in Greek, same word, and you didn't want it. Herod wants something. Jesus wants something. The people don't want something. Luke is making a point here, okay? There is a conflict of desires, and he lays them all side by side so that we can see them. What is going on here? How do we put this all together? Well, consider the sovereignty and sympathy of Jesus, okay? Nothing, no one can take his life. His will, the Father's will, will be done. I'm going to accomplish my goal. I'm going to fulfill it. Nobody can stand in the way of that. And he's tenderhearted, brokenhearted, grieved at the rebellion of Jerusalem. See, when we're dealing with the true and living God, it's not either transcendent sovereignty or intimate sympathy and compassion. It's both and. That is his glory. I love this quote by James Stewart, and that's not the Jimmy Stewart actor. This is the late Scottish theologian, James Stewart, okay? He was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of men, yet he spoke of coming on the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming, yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable that the children loved to play with him and the little ones nestled in his arms." His presence at the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the presence of sunshine. No one was half so compassionate to sinners, yet no one ever spoke such red-hot, scorching words about sin. A bruised reed he would not break. His whole life was love, yet on one occasion he demanded of the Pharisees how they ever expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams and a seer of vision, yet for sheer stark realism, he has all of our stark realists soundly beaten. He was a servant of all, washing the disciples' feet, yet masterfully strode into the temple, and the hucksters and money changers fell over one another to get away from the mad rush and the fire they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others... Yet at the last, himself, he did not save. There is nothing in history like the union of contrasts which confronts us in the Gospels. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. So, how do we put this all together? Um, because we've got this question hanging. How can Jesus' desire, his will, be frustrated? Well, those aren't the only words that speak of the divine will in the passage, okay? There's a few others. Look at verse 33. Jesus said, nevertheless, I must journey on, for it cannot be <clears throat> that I would die outside of Jerusalem. 
So the Pharisees say, go away, leave. Jesus does need to leave that place and keep moving, okay? So he has to kind of, in a sense, explain his actions. I'm going to journey on, but it's not because of the threat. It's because there's divine necessity placed on me. I am doing my Father's will, and no one can stand in the way. So there's this must language that's it's a really important word in the book of Luke. Listen to just a few illustrations of where it's present. Uh, Luke 9, 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be raised up on the third day. Luke 24, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. Luke 24, after his resurrection, was it not necessary to the men on the road to Emmaus for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then he explains the scriptures concerning himself. So back to 1333. Jesus is saying that it's the divine plan that's going to determine the length of his journey, when it ends, not Herod, not anyone else. Jesus is the prophet. He must die in Jerusalem. He's running to his death intentionally, not running from it. So we pull this all together, and here's how these multiple desires all fit together, okay? Let me just move it in the, in the direction of application. We all are like Jerusalem. We all, by nature, are hostile to God's rule and even his love. We resist him. We don't want him to gather us. He wants to gather us like baby chicks under his wings. We run and resist. We're stiff-necked. We stiff-arm him. We don't want him to rule over us or even care for us. And it does genuinely grieve him and cause him no little sorrow. And you know what? For the Israelites, for these people in Jerusalem, and for us as well, the law of God, it's no savior. Okay? That was true for them. It's true for us. The law of God is outside of us. It can't change us from the inside. Okay? The law is good, but it doesn't have the power to change us. So the old covenant was essentially outside of them. It was the law written on tablets. And so that rebel will that resists God wasn't changed. Okay? So, so here's, here's the point. They resisted. Jesus wanted. And then... Over all of that is this divine must, this great plan of God, because he is not impotent in the face of our rebel wills. So this must, I've got to go do this, precisely because you don't want to come. So I'm going to go and reach my goal. I'm going to die in Jerusalem so that you will want me, so that I will win all of the grace of the new covenant for you, so that the law will be written on your heart, so that I'll take out a heart of stone that resists and doesn't want me, and put in a soft heart that does want to follow me. Does that make sense? So are our rebellious wills ultimate? No, praise God, they're not ultimate. Otherwise, no one would be saved. No one seeks God. We all resist his wings. So the whole point of the new covenant accomplished by Jesus' death is that we would be changed from the inside out. That is exactly what's driving Jesus, even though he's sorrowful at their resistance now, that's what's driving him to the cross. 
so that He would win the covenant promises and grace on the cross so that we would be changed from the inside out so that we would stop resisting Him and actually want Him to protect and cover and rule over us. So, all these musts, all of this setting his face like flint to go toward suffering and pain, defying all the so-called human powers. It's all divinely intended so that our twisted, broken, misdirected, foolish wants could be changed. Okay, so how precious is that in light of the fact that Jesus is coming again? And the door's going to shut. This is really sweet stuff. The one, one day the door's going to close, there's not going to be any appeal. We deserve to be locked out, to be outside forever in hell. We all deserve to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. But Jesus died so that we could come in, so that we would be changed, so that we would want to come to him, so that we would stop resisting him, so that we would hear his knock and welcome his rule and love for us to be our ultimate friend, our eternal king. Okay, so we're going to celebrate that now in song and then in a few moments at the, at the Lord's table. But do you see, we start at the beginning with the greatness of God and the, the condescending love of God and how those two things come together. And in this passage, you see the sovereignty of Jesus. Nothing can get in the way. And the sympathy of Jesus. He's grieved over the hardness of heart in these people. And he is beelining to the cross and nobody can get in his way so that the sympathy of God, the mercy of God, and the sovereignty of God will explode in glorious justice and mercy and omnipotent power on the cross so that the, the cross would be the power of God to salvation for people with really hard hearts and misdirected affections like us who don't want him to rule. You see how this all comes together. So he heads to the cross, and he's going to change our wants by the power of the gospel so that we want him to rule over us. So let's hear and heed the call to trust in Jesus, not resisting his covering, not resisting his rule, his protection, his love, but welcoming it because of the grace of the gospel on the cross. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this beautiful revelation of your character where you are infinite greatness and you are infinitely great in your humble mercy and love for such undeserving Stiff arm you, stiff neck people like us. Jesus is our only hope, and I pray that we would genuinely trust in him. And that if we are in Christ, I pray that we would exult in his sovereignty and in his sympathy, the sweetness of his sympathy, the strength of his sovereignty, all for us. That same will that was unstoppable, that took him to the cross, is the will that sustains us in our faith to the end. So help us to exult in that. And for those who might be not trusting Jesus or riding the fence or deceived by some sort of just 
Christian proximity of attending church or growing up in a Christian family or whatever, would you open their eyes to see you in all your sovereign, sympathetic, gracious beauty going straight to the cross to die for our deadness and our coldness and our stiff-heartedness so that we could be changed from the inside out. Change them, Lord. Take out the heart of stone. Replace it with a heart of flesh. In Jesus' name, amen.